My own graduation, I didn't attend, which really ticked off my grandparents because I had a marathon to run that. I ran that marathon 31 years in a row. So this was somewhere Mm. in the midst of that streak. It was probably my 10th anniversary or something where I felt compelled to keep that streak alive. So it's like, I don't need to go to graduation. I'll go just go run the marathon. You're listening to Audio Life, the podcast that tells your story in your words. I'm your host, Carrie Purcell, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Marks. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here with you. Awesome. Now, Michael, you're someone who's shared your story before. Uh, You have a TED Talk. You're a keynote speaker. You've run organizations as an executive, a founder, an advisor, a board member, uh, an entrepreneur. Your father a husband, a brother, a son. So today at Audio Life, we're going to talk about your story a little differently. Uh, We're going to look at the factors that helped form and inform who you are today. So let's get started. Wow. I didn't realize that was all those things. That seems like a lot. (laughs) It does. And I don't think I have the full list. That's just a start. Oh my goodness. Let's stop there. (laughs) Here's the first question. Uh, There are no surprises today. You know all the answers. So this is an easy one. Where were you born, and is there a story behind your name? I was born in Santa Monica, California, um, to two parents that had met on a blind date and basically knew each other not very long before they were married. I think they waited a little while to have me. And then our last name, M-A-R-C-K-X, it's a Flemish or Belgian name. It's a little bit awkward. So they chose very simple names for all of their offspring. Michael happened to be the most popular name of that generation. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to report. So that's the name that they gave me. (laughs) Okay. Anything, anything behind the story to report? Is there a a dream of a more exotic name? No. um, I, my wife and I gave our kids much more exotic names sort of as the pendulum and would swing the other way. Um, Mm -hmm. but no, like there's no other Michael in our family. There's no, I have no connection. Um, my middle name is Francis, which was in honor of my grandfather. Okay. Lovely. Have you heard any stories about your birth? No, um, none really. I think the first story was when I was nine months old, I was in the crib I must have been trying to climb out because I, I cut my mouth really badly. And then um, my parents found me in a pool of blood. And I think that they thought I was a, um, is it a hemophiliac? Anyone, anyone, mm. Someone that can't um, stop the blood flowing. So uh, that's the first story. Oh, and the other one was around the same time, nine months old. They would wake me up, which is maybe why I'm such a light sleeper now. And they'd bring people in and I would always say, hi there, starting at nine <laughs> months cute. old. So I think hi there was the first words I ever spoke. Oh, that's good. I like that story. Um, I trust that the, the blood did eventually coagulate and you, you, you managed I survived to, to and I survived and I continue to not right. bleed to death right. most days of the week. Excellent. Well done. All right. So talking a little bit about your, your family, your upbringing, how many brothers and or sisters do you, did you have? 
Yeah, I'm the oldest of four. So I have a younger sister who's two years below me and then um, two twin brothers that are five and a half years younger. My parents are still together. We grew up in a very active household. My dad was a very active athlete in numerous sports, although basketball is probably his favorite. At the age of 88, I think the last 40 years he spent focused on golf. He was a marathon runner. They were avid mm. cyclists, which is why all of us got into running and or cycling at an early age, very early age. But they let us play all the sports. So I played soccer, baseball, basketball. I skateboarded um, semi-professionally, I guess you could say, and mm. uh, surfed at a young age. Um, really anything I wanted to do, they supported and by support, my mom would say, drop me off at a pool that we were going to skateboard in. And she'd come back eight hours later and pick me up. Um, <laughs> but there were four kids that she had to expertly deliver to different sports practices. So she was a very busy mom on top of actually working, um, in the school district that we all grew up in. Wow. Well, the next question I had teed up and I'm going to ask it anyway. So what was your favorite pastime? You've just given, given us a lot, but maybe focus in on one or two. Um, I was somewhat introverted. So I, uh, art was sort of a big thing for me, drawing and creating things. Uh, once I got into mm -hmm. high school, I became uh, enamored with architecture and spent a lot of time drafting different houses and then all the different, the plot plan, the electrical plan, the, the site plan, like all that stuff I love doing. And then the, the renderings as well. So I think art was, was it. And then I just practiced whatever sport I was supposed to be playing at that time. I would go out and practice on my own. So shooting baskets in the backyard, but by the age of 12, I was running marathons. So I would get up at 4.15 every day. My dad would get me up. We'd stretch together. Then we'd start our run together, or sometimes do the whole run together. So um, I did my first marathon when I was 12, which really isn't saying much because my brothers did it when they were eight and nine years old. Um, so uh, we were all marathoners. Well, that, that's impressive. Were they always ahead of you despite being behind you? Um, well, let's just say as the older brother, I inspired or forced them to do things mm -hmm. that they wouldn't otherwise do. So mm -hmm. they ran their first marathon the year that I was running my third marathon. So, yeah. um, wow. or, or second, I don't know. Um, but we, we all did things together. So if I'm running marathons and my parents are running marathons, then my sister's going to do it. And so are my brothers. Yeah. What was a typical day like as a child? My dad was very regimented, as we've already noted. He would get up early. So being a light sleeper, I would hear him. I'd get up. And as a result, like I went to bed pretty early, a lot earlier than my, my peers. But I got up a lot earlier. And um, then the end of the school day would come. We would all do our homework. And then my dad would get home around 7 or 7.30. My mom may have a cocktail ready for him. And then we'd all eat. We ate together. Most often we ate together and my mom made the meals all by herself for six people for decades. 
And the kids didn't always appreciate every meal the way we should have. Yeah. Um, I would say also uh, back then there was only three or four channels to watch. So we watched TV and that was essentially whatever my dad wanted to watch. But being that there was only three or four channels, there wasn't, you know, that much. And then when he wasn't home, we could watch the Brady Bunch, you know, or whatever silly (laughs) sitcom there was. Um, Right. But during the summer, there was nothing but sports and camps and things going on the whole time. So very active household always. And once I got into junior high, I had created a skate park in my backyard. So our house was a very popular destination for the local skateboarders. My mom also made cookies and treats for everybody. So people loved coming to our house and devouring the goodies and potentially breaking their neck in the backyard. <laughs> Which I, I, I hope and trust didn't happen. No, but, there were know, some close calls, time to talk. but no deaths and, and miraculously no broken bones that I remember. Wow. Yeah. So here's a question for you. How did you perceive time when you were a child? Back then, time moved slower, and now Mm -hmm. it moves much quicker. But, you know, the thought of, like, you're starting the ninth grade to even conceive of what it would be like to be in the 10th or 11th grade was just, was too much of a chasm in the Mm -hmm. time warp there. Time was, my youth was spent, like, pursuing things that I loved. Uh, And then working, too. I started working at age 13, And that really makes time go slow. When you're washing dishes, four (laughs) hours can seem like an eternity. (laughs) It's an interesting and fair perspective. What was your first day at your first job like? Um, Intimidating because uh, I'd never really washed dishes. And here I'm thrust into this environment where I'm washing dishes for 50 or 60 people that have just dined for lunch. So sort of bussing the tables and then washing the dishes and getting that all done. Um, it always seemed like there was a big rush to do it, but it also had to be perfect. So, you know, that was intimidating, but what I liked about work in my youth, um, and every time I would get out of a job, so I worked fast food, I worked at gas stations, I worked at restaurants, myriad jobs. I would always run from, I would run to my car or I would run to the car that was picking me up. And there's something back then that I don't have now, which is when work stopped, work stopped. So if it's five Mm. o'clock, you're not working. Somewhere in the nineties, I got subjected to this uh, newfound work ethic that tends to permeate Unless you put up barriers, it will permeate your entire existence. And so now with running a company or two, I, I can work every minute of the day and, always, and often feel compelled to do so. And it's rather unhappy and unhealthy yeah. um, because uh, I'm yet equipped to draw the lines that say, no, I'm not going to continue working right now. I'm going to spend time with my family. It's an observation that feeds into a question I was going to ask you. And I, I will ask you uh, just to give the opportunity for any further examples or, or insights. Um, how do you plan your time differently now than when you were younger? And can you give any examples? Um, 
you know, up until the later 90s, so from the 70s almost to the turn of the century, I was working on jobs that wouldn't follow me around. Plus, Al Gore hadn't mm-hmm. invented the internet yet. So I wasn't even subjected to emails or smartphone interruptions. So like I said, when work ended, it ended, and then you were free to be the person that you wanted to be, whether that was an athlete or I was playing music. By the time I was 14, I was playing music regularly. So I was either pursuing athletics or pursuing music. And back then I always felt like, okay, here's my free time. I'm going to practice as much uh, one or two things. So typically you'd only have to run an hour a day. You could get 10 miles in, in an hour. And that's um, usually a good workout. And then on the weekend, maybe you do a 20 mile run and that's, you know, a little over two hours, but um, you could spend many hours practicing the drums, which is what I would do and just drill myself and, and try to get as good as I could. So I always felt like, okay, I'm not working at the moment. Now I'm going to work on these things that I'm passionate about because someday I want to be a professional drummer or someday I want to, you know, be an Olympian running or racing my bike. And so it was easy to, to get distracted by these more romantic pursuits. Uh, and then you go to work and for those four or eight hours, sometimes 10 hours, you just focus on making sure the clock turned five o'clock as quick as possible. So, you know, immersing yourself in the task at hand is always the best way to do that because then you're not looking at your watch or the clock and hey, all of a sudden it's five o'clock. Now I can go practice the drums. Yeah. What was it like to plan your time when you first left home? Um, I had just turned 18 and my buddy Tom and I drove to UC Irvine together to live in the dorms. God bless Tom um, because he let me bring my drums and my surfboards, the bike to the dorms. And whenever he would leave, I would play the drums, which really ticked off all my (laughs) dorm mates. (laughs) So it was exciting and fun. And, you know, my parents waved goodbye and then uh, away we went. Um, And, you know, occasionally you'd call home, uh, which I did fairly often. But Tom and I had a great time in college, especially that first year, getting socialized, getting inculcated into academia and um, living independently. Fortunately for me, my dad ran uh, a division of IBM, which was nearby. And occasionally he would come by in his suit and tie, say hi, or take me out for a bite. So I had that. I was also, you know, an hour and 15 minutes away from home. So I could go home just to do my laundry, which I often did. So, you know, it was a, it was an easy transition into, you know, independent life because I was still fairly close to home. College was a great experience. Uh, very, um, I learned a lot about myself, which I suppose is more important than learning about other subjects. I attempted to learn other subjects too, at least adequately enough to get a some good grades and a degree or two. But what I really learned was I loved a lot of different sports. So I played a lot of different sports in college. Um, Eventually I became the president of my fraternity. And that was really eye-opening because I looked at that as an opportunity of, Hey, this is a business. You know, there's 120 people here. They're paying money every month. We're doing things. 
So that, that year we, uh, I just wanted to be like the best business we could have the best brand, uh, in, uh, in the fraternity. So we won the humanitarians of the year award from the city of Irvine for our philanthropic work. We also won the sports trophy. So we beat out all the other fraternities and we had the highest GPA on campus. So there was, um, you know, some successes in there that I, I feel like the application of hard work and dedication and compelling, or at least inspiring a group of people to follow the, and stay on the guardrails and to pursue those things collectively when you can. And I never thought of myself as a leader until I wanted to prove I could be a leader that, um, the ability to inspire people to collaborate mm-hmm. and achieve greatness is really cool. And I first learned that there was the possibility that I could do that back then. And believe me, in high school, I never, you know, as an introverted, artistic, geeky kid with skin, <laughs> knees and elbows from skateboarding, I never thought of myself as any kind of a leader. Wow. Is there a specific time that stands out in your life? And if so, what would it be and why? Oh, I think there's a few punctuating phases in my life. Um, certainly that college experience, the latter couple of years were informative of who I would become. Um, and that's always by way of great mentors. So I had teachers and other older students that were beckoning me in the right directions, prodding me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then afterwards I became a professional athlete and the pursuit of that was married to also playing music. So I had this uh, duality in my life uh, where I would um, stay out very late playing music. And then sometimes I'd go straight from the gig to the pool to swim with the team at 6 a.m. Then I'd go ride my bike a long way and then I'd uh, rest. Uh, So in those few years where I was pursuing that and then getting more into bike racing, I ended up winning a world amateur championship and turned pro and then uh, got by hit by a car, which derailed my professional career and then set me off in, in a new direction. So um, I would say that was a very interesting phase for me. So college into being a professional athlete and a musician, and then having that dramatically changed because someone wasn't paying attention while driving their car, which has become a theme for me because I've been hit seven times now while riding my bike by negligent drivers. So yeah, that, and then that led into another phase and that phase is, um, precipitated the uh, Ted talk that I ended up doing. So that was the next phase after that. And the career that developed after that, that phase has been this very interesting journey where basically someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, Hey, I like what you're doing here. Why don't you come do it over here with us? Uh, and that for, from, you know, a few decades was basically what happened. So I don't really remember interviewing for jobs or applying for jobs. Typically I would be asked to do some sort of informational interview with a company. And then that would manifest into some sort of employment. So yeah, that those are the important phases. And then I, I would be remiss 
if I didn't mention the, both the challenges and opportunities that have presented themselves more recently with COVID. By then, I was consulting with lots of different businesses and then not having to go drive into offices. So my day-to-day routine changed dramatically. I stopped riding my bike early in the morning and would just try and squeeze it in whenever. So some days I would never get around to it. So that wasn't very productive. But I, again, turning back to the idea that you can work 24-7 when COVID availed to us uh, remote working, that hasn't worked out for me because I just work all the time. So that's the latest phase that I'm trying to get out of is how do I not work every minute of the day and, and worry about um, things so much. Yeah. How did marriage change your experience of time? Hmm. Having been married now for 23 years and with my wife, Christine, for probably 27, um, the, when you, you're married, then you, you have the fun of that companionship and that partnership and seeing music and and romanticizing about the future and buying houses, but ultimately your focus then turns towards children and your dreams for them. So our relationship followed that typical trajectory of romance and fun and then dreaming of the kids and then having the kids and then the slowest, uh, the, the slowest way to, or the best way to slow down time is to have a pregnancy to have your wife mm. pregnant because you're so excited for that day to come and it just never comes. Uh, and then eventually you have another one and, and that's what we did. So we, we had two. So time changed and, and perceptions of time changed as well as um, your orientation to life. It becomes uh, more about the kids and their nurturing and cultivating the best environment for them. And then, and then the sports and the other endeavors and trying to be the best parents you can be travel and things like that. So our marriage has over the last few years is really focused on the kids and less on us, but sometimes we go with the kids to music that we love. And that's really great. Uh, Sometimes we visit the kids independently that's a little awkward, but it's also good for us to have individual time with them. For instance, my wife is in Santa Barbara right now with our daughter, while my son and I are at home together here here in San Diego. So yeah, time and its perception changes quite a lot when you're thinking about your children. Yes. And now for a word from our sponsors. Ready to share your stories and life philosophy or capture those of a parent or grandparent? Or maybe a corporate package is right for you to build connection across your workforce and add value to your clients. Visit audiolife.io today to learn more. Our listeners will get 10% off using discount code GIFT10 and order number Audiolife Podcast. Audiolife, where memories find their voice. Now, you've shared a lot so far, different points in your life, some of those uh, those phases that had a major impact on, on, on the direction that your life took. What aspect of your life has had the most influence on your identity? Well, there was a time where it would, would it have equally been music and athletics. 
um, cause I was playing in some bands that were pretty popular and people knew me by way of that. But then there, another part of part of the world knew me as a, as an athlete. Um, and that life was much more simple back then, even though I wasn't sleeping much, there were those two things of concern, um, and not relationships or children. That was, the, that's, stands in stark juxtaposition to the realities now of trying to have a positive relationship with my wife that transcends just being parents and still doing fun things together. Uh, trying to run a business or two and trying to carve out the time to do them adequately, but not overwhelming. And then I, I, I suppose in more recent years, my, my cycling has been at the forefront of my career because having run a bunch of companies that were all sort of within that cycling uh, industry and then having still been racing my bike avidly, I think most people would know me as a cyclist. And that's weird for me still because in some ways I don't even think of myself as that, but here I am running a, a cycling company or two that puts on events and I still try to ride as much as I can um, while still being a good parent and a good husband. So um, I would love to be known as the father of my, of our two kids and the husband of my wife more so than being known as someone in the cycling world. Yeah. Can you remember a a time when you first became conscious of the person that you are and thought, you know, about this is who I am. What characteristics were central to that identity? Um, I still haven't figured out who I am. So to be honest, uh, I just keep morphing from the geeky artistic kid <laughs> that wanted to be an athlete to impress his dad being uh, an artist in terms of music and an athlete. So then that's a new iteration. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, you know, being a, a leader on the college campus, I would, in my alone times, I would chuckle that because the story of how I became a leader is like, it's, it's worth its own Ted talk. And it's, it's actually a keynote that I've given before a couple of times, but that then here's this new bullet point to put uh, underneath my name, uh, you know, musician, athlete, then leader. And I would laugh <laughs> to, to myself, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a leader. I'm just playing one on TV. You know, I'm <laughs> acting out that role. Uh, and it seems every iteration going from being a marketing person, producer of television shows and producer of events and producer of films, still while maintaining a marketing hat, so being known as a marketing person that does these things. And then once you bump your head on running marketing or being a CMO, then the next thing is to be a president or a CEO. So then I would like, okay, how do I fake my way and add that bullet point underneath my name or attribute that hmm. skill set to my persona? So it's, it's ever changing. As I mentioned earlier, I hope that it changes into other things. So I haven't been this static person. And I think in college, I was probably known for being intense, uh, focused. 
I think that's morphed over time because now when I give keynotes or I present, there's always a comedic element that I infuse into presentations mm. uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly because I just think it's fun to have fun, but it's also easier to compel people's attention when you interject some comedic value. So all of these things, comedian, keynote speaker, leader, they're just temporary costumes that I wear. How did having children change your identity? Now you're like, you're Jojo's dad or you're Romy's dad. <laughs> um, people know that about you at work and you bring the pictures and you share with people about the exploits of your kids. And for me, like at, once they started playing soccer every weekend, which was, you know, starting at age four, <laughs> I found a way to say, ride my bike to their games or ride between games or, you know, fill in that instead of being in a car, I would ride the bike. And then at the soccer games, I was always the weird dad that showed up, you know, in cycling mandex costume. So that's another costume. Um, but being, being a dad, um, you know, you're, you use the reference to the guidebook that your parents gave you, but you really think, well, you know, being beaten with a belt probably isn't going to work out very well uh, for my kids. So I would never lay a hand on them. Um, but then a lot of the things, the, the church minded or religious minded ideologies, the golden rule, right from wrong, things that my parents spent a lot of time inculcating into us. Those are the same things that you try to provide your kids as references. And then I think, you know, maybe in some ways we were more lax with things like not always being politically correct or, you know, doing or saying the right things of which now we've learned to be really adept at navigating those conversations and, and the attitudes and or methodologies with which you use to share, inspire and cultivate in your kids' minds. Yeah. Lovely. How have your beliefs changed over the course of your lifetime, if they have? Beliefs around things like politics or religion, education, men, women, marriage, yeah. work? I would say there was a book that I read by C.S. Lewis called The Pilgrim's Regress. And it's an allegorical tale. Essentially, the protagonist sets out to disprove that God exists. That's the premise. God was the landlord in the allegorical tale. And in that, there's a tautology where he circles back to actually prove that God exists. And I think in some ways in my life, if we could equate God with good, certainly there's a reason why those two words are so similar. I left the house to go to college with a, you know, with religion as a, component of my life. And then over time that evaporated for more human pursuits. And then over time I've realized that I've come back around in my allegorical tale to realize that the most important things are the good. So God could be equated with that. But um, the idea of really being in service to others, that it's not about you, that your greatest fulfillments are going to come by way of helping others 
the greatest feelings you will ever have will come from providing service and love to other people, including your family. And the, the greatest sensations, the greatest things that you will feel relate to what your kids can produce in the world and also that good and productivity. So for me, the, the tautology or the arriving back at home is that it really does matter how you treat people, what you do in your life to manifest good and make the world a better place one way or another. So mm -hmm. it's been ever evolving, but it's circling back on itself. Yeah. Who are the people who most influenced your beliefs? Uh, certainly my dad, by far. The discipline, going to church every weekend, studying the Bible, doing the right things, you know, saying the right things. So I, I always have that as a reference. And then I've had a few really good teachers and professors and coaches. You know, I had like a coach that told me I could do things that I hadn't even considered. And so I believed him and then he helped coach me to achieve those things. And then uh, I had a couple professors in college that did the same there in terms of academia. And then I've had a, one or two bosses two bosses really that um, inspired in me how to, you know, properly lead and or guide and mentor people. And then I would also say equally as profoundly, there have been a number of people that I've met in my life through work who do exactly the opposite. So they've taught me how to not do things. And I think whatever small successes I've enjoyed in life, they were a result of uh, doing the opposite of what I witnessed those people do. So um, we can be mentored in new and untold ways if we allow ourselves to, to listen and learn. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Is that something you want to talk about more? No. I mean, yeah, I could say a little bit more. I think one of the... And maybe the, there, there's a question for this that's coming, but um, one of the, the most fun and probably profound tasks that I had in my professional career was turning around a publicly traded company that um, mainly focused on eyewear. And the five CEOs before me had collectively lost $55 million. And so I was brought in more to be the fall guy. <laughs> Uh, for its bankruptcy, I actually knew the founder of the company and what he intended the brand to be because I remember when he launched it and what it was about. And so I went, I went about resuscitating that brand and then creating a new reality for it that was more aligned with its why does it exist? And it, it had been led astray for so many years that it was easy for me to just press the reset button. Of course, the reset button included... Um, firing 32 people on the same day, and then hiring new talent, writing a guidebook or a brand book that everyone would follow, creating a marquee product line that um, would drive the success of the business and also the culture of the brand, because that was called the happy lens. And that still is the first ever patented therapeutic lens technology. And it's called the Happy Lens, which the board of directors hated the name, but 
I stuck with it. So creating great product, creating a culture that could perpetuate the idea of happy and then being relentless about that. So when you answered the phone, how can I make you happy? Every Friday we had a happy hour that the whole community was invited to. And I would do some sort of a lecture and then have someone much better at lecturing come and present on an idea that they were an expert on. I was hired for three years to turn it around, but they kept me on for two more years because the brand was thriving. I think we had 14 or 15 quarters in a row of year-over-year growth that was precipitated by this group of people believing in something and manifesting that something in powerful and positive ways for the shareholders and for themselves personally. So that was really uh, an important thing that I look back on that, you know, I left that like seven or eight years ago. Um, But that took all my life lessons, the lessons of the mentors, as well as the tormentors, the ones that I wanted to do the opposite of combining those things into one project that lasted five years. And it was uh, fun, edifying, entertaining, and provided a nice income as well. Wow. Great story. Thank you. What belief would you most want your children to share with you? I would say it's what I don't want them to have is any self-doubt, you know, like anything is possible. And, you know, when you read about people um, on their deathbed, the things that they share, like, I wish I hadn't worked so much. Probably the most popular thing that they wished they had to do is uh, be concerned with what other people thought about you. Mm-hmm. So for me, the idea of who cares what other people think, what matters is how you feel and how you make other people's feel. So if you're doing the right things and you're enriching people's lives, then who cares what people think about you? Because, you know, my dad always warned us like, as soon as you start getting better at something or exhibiting some sort of prowess, they're going to be the, the negative Nancy's, the naysayers, the people that try and shoot you down. And with social media, that really pervades our life if we allow it to. So tuning those things out, not caring about what they, people think, um, I think those are the most valuable things. What matters is how you feel and how you make other people feel. Yeah, absolutely. What's a favorite family story of yours? There were so many trips where we were all in a station wagon. The, the archetypical question of, are we there yet? <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we drive for two days to get to Kansas or to Portland, which is in the northern side of Oregon, or even into Washington, where we family still has a beach house. Those outings, you know, still stand clear in my mind. Those are important things to share with your family, even though it's miserable being in the car and drinking your cactus coolers and passing a beer up to your dad while he's driving um, when that wasn't such a concern. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Those those moments of travel and um, being together as a family, those are quality moments. But I also think just eating dinner together, doing that a lot, the volume of that is really important. But it's also those excursions that, um, that I remember that I'd still like to have with my kids. 
Yeah. And do you have a favorite or a cherished memory? Um, I, I remember when I was 14 and I set, um, a marathon record. I ran a much faster than my dad thought I was capable of running. And I came into the stadium and my mom said, Hey, here comes Sonny. That was their nickname, Mikey or Sonny. And my, my dad in his typical fashion admonished my mom. Nope. That's not Mikey. It's not Sonny. It's too early for him. Um, moments before they announced my name on a loudspeaker as I was entering the stadium and coming in. So I remember my parents sort of sharing that moment. And that was a great moment because it showed me that with dedication and getting up at 4.15 and running 100-mile weeks, that even asthmatic, geeky kids who are 4.11 and 14 years old can achieve something um, if they apply themselves to it. So that was really good. Yeah, that's a great one. What's something that a parent or grandparent told you that stayed with you? My grandmother uh, on my mom's side, she was the first to notice that I had an eye for art. She was artistic herself. She was a home decorator. Like she, she had her own store and that's what she did for people. So very elegant, artistic. And she recognized that in me and would constantly repeat it to me. So that was the first time that, you know, somebody suggested to me that, hey, this is a nice attribute to have because it's not practical being an artist. There was that. And then um, on my, my dad's side, she always taught the importance of family because on my mom's side, my mom was an only child. On my dad's side, he was the oldest of seven kids born to my grandmother and grandfather. So family for them, family time was really important. And she also always said, drink water. It makes you smarter. It makes you more <laughs> alert. Drink more water. Yeah. I like that. That's great. Um, tell us a story about a special, special anniversaries or events in your life. An anniversary? It could be, it could be an anniversary, but it could be yours. It could be a parent. It could be a birthday. It could be a work anniversary. I don't really have any anniversaries that stand out for me other than our wedding anniversary. And I still feel like we need to go and have a proper honeymoon 23 years later. Mm. Um, I still feel like we deserve that and we're working towards that. But for now, the kids are in school. I think that when they graduate their graduations will be meaningful in many ways to us so i sort of look forward to those um because in some ways that will be a little bit liberating from you know the stress and desire that we have for them and also maybe we'll be able to go and go with the kids and go someplace where we're not stressed and just enjoy um a few weeks of unadulterated fun um, but I don't really have any anniversaries that I look back on and go, oh, today was the day that such and such happened. Um, I just don't have any of those things that I cling to. Okay. I mean, even my, my own graduation, I didn't attend, which really ticked off my grandparents because I had a marathon to run that, that day. And the challenge was I ran that marathon 31 years in a row. So this was somewhere in the midst of that streak. I was probably 
my 10th anniversary or something where I felt compelled to keep that streak alive. So it's like, I don't need to go to graduation. I'll go just go run the marathon. Right. But it's interesting. You did find an anniversary that stood out that you had to prioritize and it was that marathon. Yeah. For 31 years until I could no longer run, (laughs) probably because I ran so much. Right. Do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? I'd like to do another TED talk because I feel, um, have more important things to share. I would still like to play music live, you know, more Mm. regularly. Those are things that I hope will come back around. Mm. Um, You know, selling a company is something I look forward to um, for myriad reasons. Um, Yeah, I think those are important. And then, like I mentioned, nurturing or watching the kids and their own journey and celebrating whatever they become and, and doing the best to encourage them in the directions that they want to go. Not what, not where I would want them to go. I know I had, and my wife had, you know, some constriction on what was appropriate, right? Being a lawyer or a doctor or something practical. I always wanted to be a drummer or an athlete. And now I'm a marketing person, you know, who happens to run companies, but I would like to go back to being, the athlete and the musician that I once was because that's when Mm. I felt most alive. Mm. What do you wish people knew about you? That I'm playful and fun, (laughs) you know, I mean, I suppose if they see me speak, but I think everyone else thinks, you know, because of the work I do and things that I do and the things that I write, there's a, a serious tone, but I always, apply some sort of tomfoolery to it. Um, and that's the thing that's most important to me is the levity, not taking oneself Wonderful. too seriously. I, I have yet to achieve many things that I want to, um, and I'm not giving up on those. Well, I, I can't think of a better place to, to wrap our conversation than what you just shared there. I will note it's May 17th, 2023. You've shared an incredible story with us today and with our Audio Life listeners. And I want to thank you for spending that time and, and helping to build that audio memoir for, for you, for your family, and for generations to come. Thank you, Carrie. You were uh, a great moderator and usher. Uh, along this road of, uh, of sharing. So thank you. Thanks, Michael. If you like what you heard today, consider recording your own Audio Life private podcast or giving one to a loved one for a unique and memorable gift. Today, Audio Life listeners will receive 10% off using discount code GIFT10 and order number Audio Life Podcast. Also, remember to rate our show and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.